There's never been another story like it in American history. It was a legal case in which the word of a ghost was allowed as testimony, helped solve a murder, and convicted a killer. It started in January 1897 in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, when a bride of only three months was found dead in her home by a neighbor boy. Within a month, her ghost had appeared on four successive nights and told her mother that her husband had killed her and described exactly how he'd done it. At the mother's insistence, the young woman's body was exhumed, her cause of death determined, and her husband was tried, convicted, and sentenced to a life behind bars. It's hard enough to believe on the surface, but there's even more to this story than meets the eye. It's a case where the prey returned to avenge herself on the predator. Or did she? Who was the young bride, and why did people believe her mother's story? And what happened to make the story of the Greenbrier ghost one of the strangest in the annals of the supernatural? Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the last act of this season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This has been a strange and twisted season so far, filled with witchcraft, hexes, curses, mysterious disappearances, and more spirits and sins than you could shake a stick at, but... The last act will be the strangest and bloodiest episodes of the season so far, as we delve into the murders that have forever stained America's forests, farms, and fields. This is episode 17. Make sure you leave the lights on when you listen. Zona Hester, a pretty girl with dark hair, was born in Greenbrier County, West Virginia in 1873. Little is known about her early life other than she grew up in the Richlands region of the county, an area of rolling hills, limestone bluffs, natural springs, and neatly tended farms. In October 1896, she met a man named Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe, who would eventually be her husband. He had arrived in Greenbrier County just that fall, a drifter, working as a blacksmith and trying to start a new life for himself. He began working in the shop of James Crookshanks, located just off the old Midland Trail. A blacksmith could find plenty of work along this rough, unpaved trail and throughout the county, and Shue became well known for his work. Zona's mother, Mary Jane, would always regret the day that her daughter met Trout Shue. She never liked him, not at all, and that was even before she found out that Shue had been married several times before. Mother and daughter had stopped into the blacksmith shop at a place called Livesey's Mill. It was a small cluster of buildings, a mill, a store, a handful of houses in the blacksmith shop that happened to be on the way to Lewisburg, which was the Hester's destination. Zona took one look at the new, handsome, and muscular blacksmith, and she was smitten. From the start, Mary Jane believed Shu had her daughter twisted around his finger. She often told Zona that she felt there was something the otherwise amiable man was hiding. But of course, Zona didn't listen. The couple had a whirlwind courtship, and on October 22, 1896, just a week after they met, the local newspaper announced the two of them were married by Reverend T.W. Brown at the church parsonage in Lewisburg. Mary Jane probably attended, although Zona's father, Jacob, was ill at the time. It's unlikely that anyone from the groom's family was in attendance. No mention was made in the newspaper of a reception or celebration, though these were commonly reported in detail at the time. The marriage records of Greenbrier County show that Zona was 22 years old when they married, and Shu was listed as being 29, although he was actually six years older than that. Just a few days after the wedding, a grand barbecue was held in the grove near Big Clear Creek, and it's likely just about everyone in the area attended, including Trout and Zona. There were both Republican and Democrat speakers on hand, and food enough for 5,000 people. It was probably their first public event as husband and wife, and it's easy to imagine them greeting friends and neighbors, feasting on barbecued beef, roast corn, bread, fruit preserves, and drinking apple cider and homemade whiskey. Gifts may have been given to the happy couple, like dishware or the promise of a quart of wood for the winter or a spice box, a treasured gift with which to begin housekeeping. 
These boxes were made from tin and contained little jars of cloves, cinnamon, pepper, and nutmeg, which were hard to obtain at the time and, when available, quite costly. Whatever happened in the days and weeks after the wedding, they were apparently happy. Trout Shu took his new wife to a home at Livesey's Mill, where the blacksmith shop was located. The mill was next to the shop. Here, corn and wheat were milled for the farmers who lived within several miles in every direction. Across Milligan Creek was the small general store, which stocked groceries and dry goods. At the top of the hill to the south from the store was a white frame house that served as the home and office for the local physician, Dr. George W. Knapp. To the northeast of the mill and blacksmith shop was the house that Shu rented from the estate of Will Livesey, who'd recently died. Between those two homes was the schoolhouse where Charlie Tapscott taught the area children, all eight grades in the same room. Scattered about were prosperous farms and well-built houses. The Tuckweilers, the area's richest family, lived in one. John Alfred Preston, the prosecuting attorney of Greenbrier County, lived in another. Colonel Sam McClung's farm was also nearby. He had a still house and made whiskey. It was a peaceful and quiet area, and there is no record of anything out of the ordinary happening until January 23, 1897, the day that Zona's body was found inside of the shoe home. The boy's name was Andy Jones, and he didn't just find Zona's body by accident. He'd been sent to the house by Trout Shoe himself. He was supposed to ask Zona if there was anything she wanted from the store. Andy knocked lightly on the kitchen door. Then he tapped a little harder when no one answered. Finally, after several loud raps and a call for Mrs. Shue, Andy stepped inside. The kitchen was dark and cold. The next room was the dining room from which stairs led to the second floor. But Andy was not prepared for what he found in the dining room. Zona was lying on the floor at the bottom of the stairs. She was stretched out with her feet together. One hand was on her abdomen and the other was lying next to her. Her head was turned slightly to one side and her eyes were wide open and staring. Even to this inexperienced young boy, Zona's shoe was obviously dead. Andy, not surprisingly, ran home to tell his mother. Andy and his mother Martha rushed to the blacksmith shop to tell Shu what had happened. Andy was nearly in hysterics and Martha wasn't feeling much better. It took several minutes before Shu could understand what they were trying to say and then he grabbed his coat and ran toward the house. Andy, Martha, and schoolteacher Charlie Tabscott, who was having a horse fitted with a new shoe, followed quickly behind. When they reached the house, they saw Shu inside, kneeling on the floor with his wife's lifeless body in his arms. He was crying loudly and angrily shouted to Andy, Why didn't you get Dr. Knapp? he demanded. The boy tried to explain, but Shu cut him off, telling him to bring the doctor. Andy and Martha ran for the doctor's house and found him in the middle of his noontime meal. It took them several minutes to explain what was going on, but Dr. Knapp then retrieved his medical bag, put on his coat, and followed them back to the shoe house. By the time Dr. Knapp arrived, by most accounts, an hour after Zona's body was first found, Shu had carried his wife's body upstairs and had laid her out on the bed. Contrary to local custom, he dressed the corpse himself. Typically, it was the proper thing for ladies of the community to wash and dress a body in preparation for burial. However, Shu took it upon himself to dress Zona in her best clothing. A high-necked, stiff-collared dress covered her neck, and a veil was placed over her face. While Dr. Knapp examined her and tried to determine a cause of death, Shu stayed by his wife's side, cradling her head and sobbing. Because of Shu's obvious grief, Knapp gave the body only a cursory examination, although he did notice some bruising on her neck. A newspaper account in the Pocahontas Times reported on what Dr. Knapp found when he tried to examine Zona's body. It read, There were slight discolorations on the right side of the face and right cheek. The doctor unfastened the collar and examined the front of the neck and right cheek and was about to examine the back of her neck when Shu protested so vigorously that he desisted from further examination and left the house. Initially, the doctor listed her cause of death as everlasting faint, 
and then his childbirth. Well, it's unknown whether Zona was pregnant or not, but for two weeks prior to her death, Knapp had treated her for what he called female trouble. Dr. Knapp sent someone out to notify Zona's parents, but word of the young woman's death quickly spread through the community. By late afternoon, two young men who were friends of Zona's, Dick Watts and Lewis Stewart, volunteered to ride out to an area called Meadow Bluff and tell the Hester family what had happened. The Hesters lived in an isolated area about 15 miles away, where a small scattering of homes and farms were nestled against the side of Little Sewell Mountain. When she was informed of the news of her daughter's death, Mary Hester's face grew dark. She reportedly said, The devil has killed her. On Saturday, January 24th, Zona's body was taken by carriage to her parents' home. She'd been placed in a plain, unfinished coffin from the Handley Undertaking Establishment in Lewisburg. A handful of neighbors presided over the funeral entourage, and they brought Trout Shoe along with them to the mountain farm. He showed extraordinary devotion toward the body, keeping a vigil at the head of the open coffin as the wagon traveled over the rutted and bumpy roads. The body was displayed in the Hester's home for the wake, an event that lasted all day Sunday. It gave neighbors and friends an opportunity to pay their last respects to the dead woman, visit with one another, give solace to the bereaved, and bring food for the family. A few local ladies sat up with the body throughout the night and until the time of the burial on Monday. Those who came to pay their respects during the wake pointed out the bizarre behavior of Trout Shoe. His grief swung back and forth between overwhelming sadness and manic energy. He allowed no one to get too close to the coffin, especially while he was placing a pillow on one side of her head and a rolled up towel on the other. He explained that these items were to help Zona rest easier. He was agitated and distracted, telling everyone he had dressed her himself. In addition, he tied a large scarf around her neck and explained tearfully it had been Zona's favorite. When it came time to move the corpse to the cemetery, though, several people noticed there seemed to be a strange looseness to Zona's head. So yeah, if that sounds like she had a broken neck to you, that's what everyone else thought also. People started to talk, and speculation began about how Zona had really met her untimely demise. But Mary Jane Hester didn't need to speculate about whether Trout Shoe had had some part in her daughter's death. She was convinced he had. She was sure he'd murdered her, but there's no way she could prove it. After the wake, Mary Jane took the sheet from inside the coffin and tried to return it to Shoe, but he refused it. Folding it back up to put it away, she noticed it had a peculiar odor to it, so she decided to wash it out. What happened next, she believed, was some sort of omen. Mary Jane dropped the sheet into the wash basin, and when she did, the water inside turned red. Strangely, a few moments later, the sheet turned pink and the color in the water disappeared. Mary Jane then boiled the sheet and hung it outside for several days, but the stain refused to go away. She interpreted the eerie blood stains as a sign that Zona had been murdered. Well, after this strange incident, she began to pray. Every night for the next four weeks, Mary Jane prayed fervently that her daughter would return to her and reveal the truth about how she died. And then, as she would testify to the authorities and tell anyone who would listen, her prayers were answered. Over the course of the next four dark nights, the spirit of Zona Shue appeared at her mother's bedside. On the first night, Mary Jane felt a cold chill sweep across the room, followed by what sounded like a sigh and a shifting movement, like a cat running across a wooden floor. When the sound came again, Mary Jane tried very hard to peer into the inky darkness, but could see nothing. She waited, almost afraid to breathe, and then she saw a figure start to take shape in the shadows, and it moved slowly toward the bed. Mary Jane elbowed her husband, who was sleeping next to her, but Jacob only groaned and turned away from her, still asleep. As the shadow detached from the darkness and neared the bed, Mary Jane saw that it was Zona. She was wearing a blue homespun dress that her mother had made for her just a year before. Mary Jane trembled and yet reached out a hand to touch her daughter. She later said it was though she had dipped her fingers into ice-cold spring water. 
Mary Jane called out to her, but Zona only stood there, looking sad on that first night. She seemed to want to speak, but was unable to form the words. She turned to walk away toward a dark corner of the room, and when she did, she turned her head to look at her mother. What was terrifying, though, was that she didn't look back over her shoulder. She turned her head all the way around. Mary Jane was horrified and pulled the covers over her head in fright. She reached out for her husband, she later said, just to have to something to touch so she could feel warm again. Her daughter had returned from the dead, and then she was gone. Zona returned to Mary Jane's bedroom on each of the following three nights. Every time she left, she turned her head all the way around to look at her mother. Her head was just as loose as it had been in the coffin. On the second visit, Zona started to speak. She told Mary Jane over and over that her husband had murdered her. Trout's shoe had been abusive and cruel and had attacked her in a fit of rage because he thought she hadn't cooked any meat for supper. He'd savagely broken her neck. Mary Jane had been right. She had killed her daughter, and as far as she was concerned, the word of her spirit proved it. A short time later, Mary Jane went to the local prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, to try and convince him to reopen the investigation into Zona's death. She offered the visitations from her daughter's spirit as evidence that a miscarriage of justice was taking place. Well, by all accounts, Preston was both polite and sympathetic to Mrs. Hester. The two spoke together for a few hours and Preston agreed to dispatch deputies to speak with Dr. Knapp and a few others involved in the case at the end of the meeting. While it seems unlikely he was willing to take another look at the case because of the statement of a ghost, the investigation did get reopened. Local newspapers reported that Mrs. Hester was not the only one in the community who was suspicious about Zona's death. There were also certain citizens who had started to ask questions, as well as growing rumors in the community. Preston himself went to see Dr. Knapp, and the physician admitted that his examination of the dead woman had been cursory and incomplete. The two of them agreed that an autopsy was needed to answer the questions about Zona's death once and for all. If Trout Shue was innocent of any wrongdoing, this would clear his name. A few days later, an exhumation was ordered and an inquest jury was assembled. The autopsy was performed in the Nickel Schoolhouse, which was just a short distance away from the sole Methodist Church graveyard where Zona had been buried. The schoolchildren were naturally dismissed on the day of February 22, 1897, and Zona Shue's grave was opened. It was reported in a local newspaper that Trout Shoe vigorously complained about the exhumation, but it was made clear to him that he would be forced to attend the inquest if he didn't attend willingly. On his way to the cemetery, he said that he knew he would come back from the inquest under arrest, then added, but they'll not be able to prove I did it. This was a rather odd statement for a man who claimed to be innocent. She was surly when he arrived at the schoolhouse, accompanied by Constable Shaver. He had little to contribute to the proceedings other than to stare angrily at the others gathered there, especially Mary Jane Hester. He snarled at her as he walked toward the door to the schoolhouse. You're a pretty thing, having your daughter brought up and cut up like this, he said. Shaver jerked him by the arm and Shu stumbled over the threshold, muttering a curse. Shu took his place inside, and everyone in the room heard him say aloud, I don't know what they're taking her up for. They ain't going to find anything. But that prediction turned out to be wrong. The autopsy lasted for three hours under the uncertain light of kerosene lanterns. The dead woman's body was in a near state of perfect preservation, thanks to the cold temperatures of February, making the work of the doctors much easier to complete. A jury of five men had been assembled to watch the proceedings and they huddled together in the cold building with officers of the court, Trout Shoe, Andy Jones, who'd found the body, Mary Jane Hester, and other witnesses and spectators. The autopsy was carried out by the standard methods, which meant that an examination of the vital organs came first. The physicians were initially looking for poison. At that time, such a test could have been carried out only by smell. Most poisons available to those not in the medical field, like cyanide, had a characteristic smell. 
Zenzone had been ill for a month prior to her death, it had been suggested the doctors try and determine if she'd been poisoned. They checked her stomach contents, but found nothing out of the ordinary. After that, the doctors would have normally cut an incision along the back of the skull so that the brain could be removed, but this step was not taken in the case of Zona Shu. There was no need. You see, the doctors quickly found what they were looking for. One of the doctors turned to Trout Shu and said, We found your wife's neck to have been broken. Shu's head dropped and an expression of despair crossed his face. He whispered, They cannot prove that I did it. The autopsy findings were damning to Shu. A report on March 9th stated, The discovery was made that the neck was broken and the windpipe mashed. On the throat were the marks of fingers indicating that she had been choking. Their words, not mine. The neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in the front of the neck. Well, the findings were made public at once, upsetting many in the community. Shu was arrested and charged with murder. He was locked up in the small stone jail on Washington Street in Lewisburg. Even though the evidence against him was circumstantial at best, he was indicted by a grand jury and was formally arraigned for murder. He immediately entered a plea of not guilty. While he was in jail waiting for his trial to begin, information about Shu's unsavory past began to surface, and locals realized they knew very little about the monster in their midst. He had been born Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe in 1861 in Augustus County, Virginia. After the Civil War, his parents Jacob and Eliza moved to West Virginia and settled near the border of Greenbrier and Pocahontas counties. The Shoes were fairly wealthy and owned a large amount of land in the area. Trout Shoe was a handsome man skilled in both woodworking and blacksmithing. He was married the first time to a young woman named Allie Esteline Cutlip. Her parents didn't approve of the match, but Shu managed to lure her away from home to visit one of his uncles. Once he got her away from the influence of her parents, he talked her into marrying him. They had one child together in 1887, Gerda Lucretia Shu. But two years later, Shu was arrested and convicted for horse stealing. He was sent to the West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville and served a little less than two years. But while he was in prison, Allie divorced him. In the divorce decree, she alleged that he'd been violent and had frequently beaten her. In 1894, Shu married again, this time to Lucy Ann Tritt. Lucy died just eight months later under circumstances that were described as mysterious. Now, there are a number of versions of the story of Lucy's death. One story claimed that Shu was fixing a chimney, and he asked Lucy for a drink of water. She went and got it, and when she came back, he accidentally dropped a brick on her head and killed her. Well, there are enough people in the area who believed he'd done it on purpose that his life was soon in danger. A group of neighbors chased him, and he hid in a barn. They shot him several times through the door, but he escaped. Well, that's just one version of the story. Another story claims that she was away from home and Lucy, heavily pregnant, slipped and fell on some ice while on the way to the outhouse. She bled for two days before she told anyone about her fall and eventually died during premature labor. Another story claimed that she died when she was poisoned by mountain laurel tea that Shu had given her. Another tale claimed that Shu and Lucy were working in a hay field and he pulled her off a haystack, causing her to fall and break her neck. Well, no one knows what really happened. In the Pocahontas Times of February 15, 1895, a report states Mrs. E.S. Shu, wife of Trout Shu, died very suddenly at her home near here on last Monday morning the 11th. We haven't been able to learn the particulars of her death. Well, it seemed to be an unfinished story, but it was never followed up. Most of the stories about Lucy's death make no sense. It was wintertime, which makes working in a hay field and fixing a chimney unlikely. It was cold, so it's possible Lucy had some sort of respiratory infection, which might have seemed like poisoning. All we know for sure is that Shu later left the area and moved to Greenbrier County, where he had his fateful meeting with Zona and her mother in a blacksmith shop, a meeting that would eventually lead to Zona's death. While in jail, Shu was in remarkably good spirits and reported that his grieving for Zona had come to an end. 
In fact, he announced he had a lifelong goal of having seven wives. Since Zona had been his third, he said, and he was still a young man, he believed he had a good chance of realizing such a worthwhile ambition. He was also convinced that he would be out of jail after his trial. He repeatedly told reporters that his guilt in the matter could not be proven. He also had, he announced, two exceptional attorneys. He either obtained them or they were assigned to him, no one knows, but he began to be represented by William Parks Rucker and James P.D. Gardner. In a serious case, the court would appoint an older, experienced lawyer and a younger one so that the defendant received full legal representation. In this case, Rucker was well-known in Greenbrier County and had been an attorney for many years. Gardner was new to the area. He was also African-American. In the years after the Civil War, many black attorneys offered to represent poor defendants in capital cases. He likely volunteered to represent Shu, and Gardner was appointed to assist him. During the next four months, prosecuting attorney Preston gathered all the evidence he could against Trout Shu. He believed he'd killed his wife, but he had to prove it. At the same time, Gardner and Rucker worked to try and establish their client's innocence, seeking out character witnesses and, if worse came to worse, looking for ways to get Shu to confess and get a lighter sentence if the trial didn't go his way. Well, it's easy to imagine that the quest for character witnesses for Trout Shu didn't go well. The gossip in the community must have been discouraging to the defense team, especially in light of newspaper stories like one that ran in the Greenbrier Independent that noted shortly before the trial, Trout Chu, who was now in jail awaiting trial for the murder of his wife, has threatened to kill himself. <laughs> Even so, the attorneys managed to allegedly line up 120 witnesses to testify on Chu's behalf. They were mainly people he'd worked with or worked for who could speak to his good character. They also included family members, preachers, and teachers who knew him. Not all of them had been quick to respond to the summons, though. According to the Greenbrier Independent, one witness was so intent on not appearing at the trial, he went into hiding. A deputy had to be paid expenses to go and find him and bring him in. That witness? Shue's own brother, John Patrick Shue. In a report in the Pocahontas Times, it was remarked, on the issue of the trial depends the question of whether Shu will reach his seventh wife. As he has boasted, he would have seven. The passing of the third endangers his neck or is liable to send him to the penitentiary where there is no marrying or giving in marriage. Well, the trial began on June 22, 1897, before Judge J.S. McWhorter, who was described as a staunch Republican. He'd spent most of his life in public office. He'd been an attorney, served as the mayor of Lewisburg, and spent eight years on the judicial bench. After the jury was sworn in, the trial began, with opening statements from both sides. District Attorney Preston explained to the jury that the case against Shue was a circumstantial one, but was compelling nonetheless. In fact, it would offer evidence, quote, such as never been presented in any court before. Now, this may have been referring to the testimony of the ghost, but there's no way to know for sure. There is no transcript of the trial, and Preston never referred to the ghost story in his opening. In all honesty, Preston might have never mentioned the ghost story at all. It would be brought up by an attorney for the defense. He made the fatal mistake of referring to the ghost story. For the next several days, numerous people from the community testified against Shu. There were doctors, neighbors, Andy Jones and his mother, and many others. The first witness to the state was Dr. Knapp, who had revised his initial conclusions about Zona's death following the autopsy that had been conducted. Zona Shue, he said, had been murdered. The other doctors present at the autopsy were called and agreed with his findings. It was clear that someone had dislocated her neck, which caused her death. Andy Jones testified next recounting what he had seen on the morning he found Zona's body. Under some circumstances, the boy might have been a suspect himself, but only because he was African-American. Shu may have hoped this would be enough for suspicion to fall on the boy, but it didn't work. His mother, Martha, was well-respected in the community, and she followed her son to the stand. When she testified, she stated that she would ask her four times on the day of Zona's murder to send Andy to, quote, help his wife. The state's witnesses that followed testified to Shu's behavior around Zona's body. 
and those that, quote, observe the head to be very loose on the neck and would drop from side to side when not supported. Some spoke of Shu's stated intention of having seven wives. Other bragging that he had done in the community came back to haunt him too, with close neighbors declaring that, quote, they didn't think Shu from his actions and words was regretful of the death of his young wife. Some witnesses recounted the things he did and said at the autopsy, like when he stated that he knew that he would come back under arrest. And finally, it was noted by several that in the preceding months, in speaking to a number of witnesses on the subject, he always said he knew that he couldn't be proven that he did the killing. The highlight of the trial, of course, came with the appearance of Mary Jane Hester. By this time, just about everyone in the community had heard some version of her ghost story. They packed into the courtroom, anxious to hear her talk about it, so they must have been surprised when District Attorney Preston avoided the subject altogether. Preston put her on the stand as both the mother of the dead woman and as the first person to notice the unusual circumstances of Zona's death. He wanted to make sure that she appeared both sane and reliable. For this reason, he skirted the issue of the ghost, because it was bound to make her appear irrational and because it was, let's be honest, inadmissible evidence. The teller of the story, in this case Zona Shu, could obviously not be cross-examined by the defense, and so her testimony would be hearsay under the law. Unfortunately for Shu, his attorney, William Rucker, decided to ask Mrs. Hester about her ghostly sighting. It seemed obvious he was doing it to try and make Mary Jane look ridiculous to the jury. He characterized her visions as a mother's ravings and worked hard to make her admit that she might have been mistaken about what she allegedly saw. Rucker asked, uh, Now, Mrs. Hester, this sad affair was very particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it. No, sir, Mary Jane replied, and there is not yet either. And this was not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir, it was not a dream, for I was wide awake as I ever was. Then, if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? Well, I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what happened, and I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Rucker rolled his eyes at the jury. Do you think you actually saw her in flesh and blood? He now asked. Yes, sir, I do, Mary Jane answered him. I told them the very dress she was killed in, and when she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And the very next time she came back to me, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed that she didn't want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards. The last night she was there, she told me she did everything she could do, and I'm satisfied that she did all that too. Rucker was exasperated by her story, putting on a show for the jury to show them he didn't believe a word that Mary Jane was telling to the court. Now, Mrs. Hester, he said, don't you know these visions as you turn or describe them were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? But Mary Jane disagreed. She shook her head at the attorney. No, I don't know it. The Lord sent her to tell it. I was the only friend that she knew she could tell and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. He continued to badger her for quite some time, but Mary Jane never wavered in her descriptions of Zona's ghost, nor about what the specter had told her about Trout Shoe's guilt. He continued to try to get her to admit she'd merely dreamed about her daughter, but Mary Jane refused. I'm not going to say that, for I am not going to lie. Rucker continued his line of questioning, trying to get Mary Jane to admit she could have been imagining things or that she was mistaken about what she'd heard, or at the very least prejudiced against the man she believed killed her daughter, even though she had no proof of it. He wanted her to say anything other than that a ghost had told her of Trout Shoe's guilt, but she refused. When Rucker realized that her testimony was not going the way he wanted, he dismissed her from the stand. By that time, though, the damage was done. Because the defense and not the prosecution had introduced the testimony about the spirit, the judge had a hard time telling the jury to exclude it. It was apparent that most of the people in the community believed that Mary Jane had seen her daughter's ghost. 
even after the defense counsel offered a long string of witnesses in support of Shu, and after Shu offered eloquent testimony in his own defense, the jury quickly found him guilty anyway. There were even 10 of them who voted he'd be hanged, which spoke volumes about Mary Jane's believability as a witness. Without a unanimous verdict of death, though, Shu was sentenced to life in prison. In the wake of the trial, the Pocahontas Times declared that Mary Jane's story of Zona's visits was instrumental in bringing about the autopsy and the inquest, which then led to Shu's arraignment for murder. The article read, Trial Shu was found guilty of murder in the first degree in the Greenbrier Court, the jury recommending a life sentence. The evidence was convincing that Shu murdered his wife by breaking her neck, and the case presented this aspect, that the woman died of a broken neck, and that it was impossible for her to break it herself, and that no one could have done it except her husband. What was the closing scene of the woman's life will probably never be known, but the explanation of the vision of the woman's mother gives a very striking suggestion of the last quarrel which ended in the death of the woman. She said that her daughter appeared to her and said that on the last evening she'd gotten a good supper except there was no meat on the table and that her husband had become enraged on account of it. Shu is a bad man and he has no sympathy from the neighborhood in which he was raised. Trout Shoe's life sentence didn't satisfy everyone in Greenbrier County. On July 11, 1897, a citizens group of anywhere between 15 and 30 men assembled eight miles west of Lewisburg to form a lynching party. They purchased a new rope and were well armed when they started toward the jail. If not for a man named George M. Hara who alerted the sheriff, Shoe would surely have been lynched. Hara contacted Deputy Sheriff Dwyer at the jail. It was said that when Shu was informed of this threat against his life, he became greatly agitated and was unable to even tie his own shoes. Dwyer hit him in the woods a mile or so from town until deputies were able to disband the mob and send them home. Shu was moved to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville on July 14th, where he lived only for the next three years. On March 13, 1900, he died during one of the epidemics that swept through the prison that spring. At that time, the prison commonly buried unclaimed remains in the nearby Tom's Run Cemetery, for which no records were kept until the 1930s. Thanks to this, no trace of Trout Shoe could be found today. Mary Jane Robinson Hester lived to tell her tale to all who would listen. She died in September 1916 without ever recanting her story about her daughter's ghost. And as for Zona, her ghost was never seen again but she has left a haunting mark on Greenbrier County, and it's one still being felt today. In fact, a roadside marker along Route 60 placed by the state of West Virginia still commemorates the case today, noting that it's, quote, the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. As I've often said before, dead men do tell tales, or in this case, a dead young woman whose life was cut short far too soon. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. 
So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words come Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season six of the podcast. Woods and fields, dark and wicked. Thank you. Uh, I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Doing his best to do some Norwegian black metal voices for you. So, is that what that was? I guess I should have screamed it. No, really, it's not. I should have screamed it, so... Yeah. I would love to hear that if we can get that unintelligible. So <laughs> maybe that could be a different Patreon tier where you get to hear Troy learn how to do metal vocals. Yeah, because I could do that. So <laughs> I would love that. What's been going on, dude? It's been a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, I guess it has actually. Things got kind of busy at the end of the summer, didn't they? They did. How'd the book signing stuff go? The Alton one. Good, good, good. Yeah, it was great. Uh, we had a really great turnout for it. Uh, people were there, you know, normally you do a book signing to go, oh, yeah, we're going to be there for four hours. And the first two hours are, you know, okay. The first hour is great. Second hour is okay. Third hour, you don't do anything but eat lunch. Fourth hour, boring until like the last 15 minutes. But actually, we had people there the entire time. Oh, nice. So I was pleased. We had a line out when we opened. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Got to see That's a lot awesome. of people that you don't always get and yeah so the book is gone the, it, we're talking about the new haunted alton book the new edition if you uh don't know what we're talking about um and if you don't know what we're talking about then um you probably could catch up on earlier episodes of the podcast right. so <laughs> but anyway yeah but anyway yeah no it's it's been fun so and now it's you know labor day is over which means i am now proclaiming it is officially fall that's what you do it's every year, yes. Because Labor Day is over. So, yeah, I know. I know, and I'm always right. So, I mean, if you're not one of the people like me who say that it's okay to have Halloween decorations up all year round, well, now you can start decorating. So, I mean, people can't see this, but, you know, Cody can, and he's been in my office many times, even though this is a new office. He's been here many times, and he knows that it's Halloween all year round at my house. So same with my you know. apartment. Yeah. I just, yes. leave stuff yeah. Out. Even in the normal parts of the house, I have like framed Ouija boards, you know, so not, not my office, you know? So yeah, it's uh, so it's time to get ready for Halloween, which means it's time to get ready for everything else we have going on. So um, I should tell you, as far as our tours go, if you were thinking, man, it'd be a lot of fun to go to Decatur. Uh, honestly, the only reason it's fun to go to Decatur is because we have haunted Decatur tours in October, uh, but they're sold out. So you're out of luck. So Damn. that's done. So you're off the hook. No need to go to Decatur for any possible reason at this point now. So uh, okay. we're Chicago or October tours are up. They're filling up. Alton filling up. Springfield filling up. River Road tours uh, all filling up, but you're going to have to uh, go on those after Halloween because September and October are completely sold out. So um, if you do want to do the river road, you tour with me, you've got to do November or December or wait till after the first of the year when it's not so crazy because we do them all year round. 
Uh, but if you want to do something else spooky, um, I do have stuff still coming up, the dinner and spirits events, which are a lot of fun. Uh, they're a lot of fun for me. They seem to be fun for other people. They keep coming. So that's always a plus. Uh, but so just the list through the end of the year, um, American Monsters, uh, Valley of the Kings, my King Tut thing, uh, St. Louis Exorcism, St. Louis Spirits and Sins, which is not, you know, the exorcism, the limp family, anything famous. These are all the other cool stories that we don't always get to tell. Hollywood right. Horrors, which is horror films inspired by real events. Um, In a Dark Place, that's the Sinister Haunting Ones, American Witch, Edgar Allan Poe, Spirits of Christmas. Uh, that's December. Let's not talk about Christmas yet. Let's We're, <laughs> we're Let's just wait. now proclaiming it Halloween. Let's wait on Christmas. But it's going to be a fun fall. So hope I see you. Um, dinnerandspirits.com or you can go to americanhauntings.net and check that stuff out so yeah awesome i'm gonna turn my camera off because my internet's a little slower here yes i've noticed that it's Sorry. always fun to it's always fun to say something that i think is funny and then look at you and you're just staring at me and now you're not even staring at me now it's a blank screen but well, Cody's in be, a hotel. I should probably tell you that. So to be fair, I'm usually just kind of staring at you when you say something well, that you think is, is funny. I it's a tough crowd. Nancy, there we go again. Are you still there? <laughs> okay. Damn it. Yeah. It says my connection's it's unstable. Not going I might well, need to, is it? I, mean, I, I can to, hear you. I can hear you okay, but it says my connection's unstable. I might need to use my hotspot or something. Are you sure that it's your connection? Just yeah, like, just it, yeah, okay. All right. All right. <laughs> I'll keep going with this. Let's see if it starts to get too unstable. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Okay. All well, right. let's let's go with this. I think we'll be okay, okay. now. All right. All right. Well, we've had a lot of uh, nice listener reviews lately, but I decided to go ahead and pick a short and sweet one just because I, I well, like I you're gonna say you're gonna say we've had some nice listener reviews lately, but I'm gonna go ahead and pick one that's bad. <laughs> I'm gonna pick a mean one. this one is from kevage uh it's titled great podcast and it says just what the evil doctor ordered and that's it short and sweet to the point and uh, i like that one (laughs) are you ready to dive into this that's all the listener reviews okay i'm ready nope let's let's move on i'm good um, okay, so I just wanted to say uh, it's it's nice to see one uh, one of these cases, Troy, where a rich guy doesn't get away with it. Yeah, well, he wasn't necessarily rich, just uh, you know, kind of, I guess. And you know, it's a it's nice to see uh, the bad guy not finish first for a change. Sure How about that. Right, right. Okay, I guess that's a better way to put it. Yes. Yeah. So January eighteen ninety seven. A bride of three months is found dead by a neighbor boy, and her ghost appeared on four successive nights and told uh, her mother that the husband had done it. Long story short, and it's um it's and weird that's because it. so hope you guys like this. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought we I thought you were stopping. Go ahead. I just I I you know I trimmed down my outline a lot and uh, just cut cut it down <laughs> to those two sentences pretty much. Just that, and that's it. Okay, but this is I'm an sorry. interesting case. No, you're fine because you don't see um a you don't see a, a ghost uh, testifying essentially so often, and it's even funnier because the defense is the one that brings it up in the first place. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that was a bad move. No, it wasn't. Wasn't uh yeah, not not recommended. So the well, victim- considering how many stories we've talked about, I mean, how many court cases have we done this season? A lot. And yep. so you never know. And and throughout, you know, I mean, court cases throughout our entire, you know, episodes, all of our episodes of podcasts, the juries are never, <laughs> you know, you never know where they're going to go. And we've had so many times where the people in the courtrooms have believed everything, like some of those witch stories that we did early in the season. And so the people in the you know, the people in the uh, the audience are yelling out call and response to the attorneys, you know, about the, the, the witch or this, that or the other. And so, you know, bringing that up was a terrible, terrible idea in rural West Virginia in the late 1800s, you know.
Uh, okay. Oh okay. Well, it'll, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'll fix it. I'll fix sorry. it. I'm just going to keep laughing. I'm sorry. It's, that's okay, go fine. Ahead. Uh, it's so just it, hilarious to say something and there's like no response. <laughs> I, I know. I'm sorry. It's going to sound even No, it's okay. Funny. It's actually funny. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, gl- I'm glad you're enjoying it so much, <laughs> laughing at all the work I'm going to have to do. Uh, okay. Zona Heaster, born 1873. Hester. S Hester? Hester. 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 Okay. I should have put a pronunciation on that. That's you know me. Uh yeah. meets her husband. Oh geez. Erasmus? Erasmus? Erasmus. Erasmus dribbling trout shoe. What a fucking name, man. I know. Well, you know, those southern names, there's a lot a lot of times they'll have multiple names, you know. Right. Just a big string of them. And Erasmus was apparently a popular name at the time. Gosh, it'll come back around for some hipsters or something. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> uh, okay, I got a question that this one is not exactly normal. So you know, well, that's true. There's that's a lot true. of weird names in this one. Go ahead. This, oh, sorry, this oh, you're good. This grand barbecue you talked about that they held a few days after their that wedding was a awesome. big event. Was it was it for for them or was it like no, for the town? No, no, no. It was um, it was kind of like a county fair kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, it was just a big barbecue they had for everybody in the area. That's why they had so many people, and then they had Republicans and Democrats both there. Uh, because I mean, it, it, at that point, it was starting. I mean, I know that it was October, uh, but that was starting to get close to election time. So they had a lot of you know. It was just a big you know big event in October. You know. So, got it yeah okay, okay fall festival makes, kind of thing if that makes sense that makes sense okay okay so there's a boy who finds the body andy jones and this is basically by design right uh, to try yeah to yeah he kept he kept him. telling um he kept telling andy that or trout uh kept telling andy that he needed him to go why don't you go to the house and see if zona needs anything I'm going to, I'm going to make a stop at the, at the store on my way home for supper. Uh, Why don't you go see if she needs anything? And he asked him four times that day to go check. And finally, Andy went down and looked, I'm guessing Andy was probably just hanging around the blacksmith shop. You know, I mean, kids do kind of thing. And, and honestly, I mean, it's kind of fun to watch blacksmithing. I mean, if you go to some history thing, it is kind of cool to watch. So I'm sure that's what he was doing. And so Trout just kept trying to send him down there to get him to, you know, go find the body. Got it. Got it. And then Dr. Knapp's examination is pretty rushed, uh, mostly because of, of the, the husband <laughs> yeah. kind, of, kind of being suspicious and laying all away. over her and holding on to her and not letting him, you know, taking her upstairs and changing her clothes. And I mean, that's not normal. It's not normal behavior. You know, but I, 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 all I can imagine is that everybody just kept thinking, well, it's none of my business, you know, though he's, this is his, this way, his way of grieving. I don't know. Or this doctor was just a real pushover, which is maybe he knew that. I mean, the guy lived right there. So, I mean, he was close by, I'm sure he knew him well. And maybe that was the other thing too, is that the doctor thought, well, you know, he wouldn't have done anything wrong. I know old trout from down at the blacksmith shop, you know, he, because he was charming. I mean, God, he was a con artist. I mean, he was, you know, everybody talked about how charming and friendly he was. So, you know, him taking her upstairs and dressing her was odd, but, you know, he was so grief stricken, you know, that's, that's the way he tried to portray it. He was so grief stricken that, you know, he just had to do it himself. Oh, you know, this is Zona's favorite dress. This is Zona's favorite scarf, all this shit, you know? So I'm sure that was a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, well, death can be awkward and sometimes yeah. people don't want to push it or ask yeah, questions. Yeah, true. True. Uh, Mary Jane Hester was sure that she would have part in her daughter's death. And uh, she, she, there's things like she takes the, uh, the she tries to get the sheet back from inside the coffin. So she washes it and is convinced there's these eerie blood stains. So she's praying for a month. Yeah. Well, that's her story. Um, right. You know, I, I, I don't, I, I do think that there was something, whether or not she conjured all this up out of her own mind, I mean, for for all we know, I mean, this woman hated Trout all along, never liked him, never wanted her daughter to marry him. She did it anyway. She was always unhappy when they brought the news that she was dead. She was convinced he'd done it, knew all along. She said that, you know, he killed her. 
And, uh, you know, this story about this sheet, you know, um, I mean, and that's that's a big thing. That was a big thing in that area around that time. And we've talked about this in early in the season, you know, signs and omens and importance and things. And so people, you know, she thinks that, you know, she sees, you know, this pink stained water. Well, it must mean blood stains. It might, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's there's all of that. But she may have worked herself up in such a state that she dreamed it being visited by a ghost, but she was convinced she was awake and really she convinced a jury. And I guess that's really in the end, that's what matters, you know? Um, but I mean, I'm sure she was upset from the moment that, you know, that the body showed up and, you know, everybody's talking about how, you know, her, <laughs> she's like a bobblehead or something in the coffin. Right. Every time it moves and her head's going every direction, you know, I mean, it's obvious to people who'd seen that more than their share of accidents and people falling off horses and falling out of barns and everything else over the years, they, they recognized a broken neck. Now how that doctor didn't, I mean, I guess we could just say, well, he didn't get close enough, but mm -hmm. how in the world he missed a broken neck is a bit beyond me other than, you know, you know, there were the stories about how he treated her for female trouble, which we don't have any details as to what that meant. And you know, I guess he didn't really get close to her. So I had no reason to think she'd been murdered, at least at that moment. But still, I, I wouldn't want him as my doctor. <laughs> Let's put yeah. it that way. I'm going you know, I'm gonna I'm to need to check his ass on Dr. Knapp. I'm, I'm going to check his credentials. I got to pull his file. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no kidding, man. <laughs> so Mary Jane goes to the local prosecutor, Alfred Preston, to get him to reopen the investigation. And he does, but not because of the ghost, but because there's rumors going around. He's like, all right, we got to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, somebody leaned, somebody leaned on him. I think at this point, there were so many rumors going around and, you know, there were some, there were some wealthy people in the neighborhood. And I think that um, probably some of them knew enough of the family or new cousins because you know half town was probably related you know and had some suspicions that they needed to look into it a little bit further than they had and leaned on the doctor that'd be my guess lean on the prosecutor to lean on the doctor right and something interesting that you talked about that i didn't know is you said they could only identify poisons in organs at that point by smell which mm. is seems just like a terrible <laughs> skill to get Gross. good at yeah no kidding right but you know there are like and i mentioned like cyanide because it smells like almonds um that's always been the story you know that i mean i you've i've read that in so many mystery novels and stuff over the years i think even agatha christie books you know talk about stuff and smelling like things but yeah they have to open the bodies up to check for poison they you couldn't at that point at least in that area at that point in history you couldn't just test someone's blood or something that 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 you know it didn't just didn't work that way at the time you know you had to look at a body that was you know had someone who had already died because you had to cut them up to do it right right and so once they 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 don't see any signs of poisoning but then they look at her neck and they're like oh yeah okay she's broken <laughs> yeah guess we don't need to worry about whether or not she was poisoned so yes and then her neck. and shoes arrested charged with murder just like he predicted would happen yeah right no kidding <laughs> and he's had once they start digging into his background a little bit, they find he had previous wives uh, and one of them, he, he gets divorced because he goes to prison for horse stealing. She claims he was violent. His second wife died just eight months into their yeah, marriage. Just, in again, under suspicious circumstances. So suspicious that there's like four different stories about how she died. <laughs> and even even the most even the most basic one is suspicious. So, I right. mean. You know, there's there's good reason to wonder about his motives and what he's up to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then while he's in prison, he claimed that his goal was to have seven wives. <laughs> so he's not doing himself any favors here. No, no, definitely not. Yeah, he, he told that to a reporter before he even went to prison. So, you know, I mean, come on. And he's right. not going to get any more. In, he's not going to get any more in prison or at least not the kind of wives he wants. I don't think. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's hard for the defense maybe to find great character witnesses, but they bring in, you know, 120 people. At least there's, there's a lot. Yeah, and half those people are probably like 
Oh yeah, he made horseshoes for me. He seemed right. like a nice guy because you're desperately looking for anything. I mean, they couldn't even get his brother to come in and testify on his behalf. So I'm going to guess none of those people were putting their necks too far on the line for Trout Shoe. It was probably just like, well, that's you know, that's where I normally go to get my, you know, to get things repaired, and you know, he always does a good job. Okay, character witness, he does a good job. So you know, I mean, they're just thinking we're killing time here. All he were doing were killing time and trying to paint a picture of that he was this hardworking, decent guy when it really didn't take much to show the opposite. Well, clearly, this is not one guy you want to stick your neck out for, Troy, because he'll break it. <laughs> he'll <twist it. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look what happened when Zona did. Right. So. Right. Uh, so D.A. Preston, he ends up avoiding the well-known ghost story when examining uh, Mary Jane Hester. Um and because he wants her to look, you know, very, very reliable. But like you said, the defense brings it up to try and make her look unreliable. But she never wavers in her story. She tells the whole thing, no matter how ridiculous sounding. So it really just kind of backfires and blows up in his face. Yeah, since he said so many people. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, and and like I said, though, you know, the whole idea of she sat right there and didn't come across like a lunatic, and you know, reliably told this story. And I, I'm sure it sounded convincing to well, the people in the courtroom, for sure. It must have sounded convincing to the jury. But, you know, the way I look at it is that even if they didn't believe her, she was so believable mm -hmm. about what a louse Trout Shoe was that they would have gone ahead and, I think, gone ahead and even circumstantial evidence convicted him anyway. I really do. Right, right. And yeah, and then they, they do. The damage is done. The jury quickly finds him guilty, but only 10 people voted to have him hang. So he's just sentenced to um, life in prison. Then a lynch mob tries to take him out, but they hide him for a little bit. And then eventually he just dies like a few years later during some epidemic that, you know, mm -hmm. as we know, went rampant through different right. prisons and things right. like that. And and Mary Jane dies without ever recanting the story about her daughter's ghost yeah. visiting her. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, she are lived gonna, until 1916, you, which I'm gonna, sorry. No, say, are you going to do a dead women tell no tales thing? Um, I've actually, um, well, I did, I did kind of add that at the end, but um, it's not a plan for a book necessarily because I do that Hell Hath No Fury series. Oh, right. And I actually, this story was included in book one. So, um, of that series, uh, just because it's, you know, it is. It is a classic story. I mean, it's it's like what you want from a movie version of a ghost story. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. mean, this is a Hollywood. This is a Hollywood story that's never been made, and it's too bad because I think it would make a good. I think it would make a good movie. You know, I agree. But yeah. So it's but yeah, this is one of those stories that is. Um, I don't know. I just I've always liked it. It's always been one of my favorites. Yeah, and it's nice to get back to the ghosts, and especially when they get to contribute to a uh, you know trials <laughs> and things. Exactly like that. right, right, <laughs> exactly. Well, I'd like to give uh, some shout outs to our new supporters on Patreon. So thank you so much for supporting the show, Marie, Jennifer, Mike, Night Spirit Studio, Paige O, Cindy, and Barbara. Thank and you. And I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because um, as those of you already Patreon supporters know, we uh, just finished the Moonlight Murder series uh, in our alternate podcast, which I got to come up with the name for that. Uh, it needs a name, but I'll, right. I'll work on that. Um, but we uh, we did the Moonlight Murder. It was a 10-part series just for Patreon members, and uh, we just finished it. So if you've been thinking, you know, I've been hearing these guys talk about that podcast, but I'll just wait till it's over. Because, I mean, you know, I do that when I'm, uh, stuff will come on as a TV thing, TV series. I'm like, ah, I'll just wait till it's finished. I'll watch the whole thing. Well, now you can binge the whole thing if you want to. The whole show is up there, all 10 episodes. And in a couple of weeks, uh, I will uh, we'll, we'll get the first episode up of the new one. I'm, I, I'm working on it now, so you got to give me time. <laughs> <laughs> to get to working on it but we are going to be coming back with another another season another series of episodes of whatever this thing is called um so we'll come up with something and uh i will uh i will get those to cody soon and uh so hang in there uh we'll have more coming for now uh listen to this uh this show and then we'll have a bonus show coming soon 
Perfect. Well, it is now time for our Ghostwriters segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This one's going to be a little different, Troy. I'm not actually going to read an email, but I did want to give some shout outs to a couple emails we've gotten recently. Oh, okay. Okay. This, um, Carrie listened to, I guess the entire episode and at the very, very end, she heard me the last episode. She heard me talking about my eye was twitching oh. and, uh, <laughs> she, she, uh, gave me some tips on dealing with that. And then, uh, Terry Is that a frequent me. problem for you? No, it's not. Oh. It's just I guess okay. she was saying <laughs> just, that the one time. I didn't know. I thought maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> no, and then uh, Terry reached out because I guess on one of the episodes I talked to you about how I was kind of having hot flashes, and so she gave me tips on how to deal with that. On how to deal with your menopause or yes, something? My, yes, uh, yeah, menopause. Okay. okay. Yes. yes. And then um, Helen – <laughs> menopause. Helen sent me uh, kind of like a mantra, I guess, that she – uses to deal with anxiety and oh. i i've learned that i need to stop divulging so much information on the <laughs> yeah that you're getting all these all this these medical advice yeah you're kidding right <laughs> no but i really do appreciate everybody reaching out just being like hey i kind of know what you're talking about here's what helped yeah, me yeah, you know cool. so that's been really awesome so thank you so much for that and uh yeah keep sending me all your advice at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com that's all i got Good. All right, man. Well, I think that's all I've got too. So, uh, guys, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, we are getting ready with another episode coming up in two weeks. Uh, another one. I'm excited. I'm actually pretty excited about the whole rest of the season. So, uh, we've got a you know a handful of episodes still to go as we get closer to the end of the year. So keep tuning in. Uh, keep telling your friends about it. Spread the word. Let them know about. The podcast if you like it if you don't like it uh tell them about something else i guess um anyway don't forget also want to throw in there i didn't mention it earlier and i meant to uh don't forget to use your podcast promo code if you're ordering books or anything from our website at americanhauntings.net all you have to do is put in podcast as a promo code you automatically get 10 percent off just for being a listener so Anyway, I guess that is it for me. So thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. I'll roll out with this hotel Wi-Fi. But this episode of the American Hauntings podcast God. was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and painstakingly edited by me, Cody yeah, Beck. Yeah, well, it will be by the time you're done. Yeah, I know. Our music end. for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm. You can find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. And you can find us on most of those places, too. Plus, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. And you can listen on really bad hotel Wi-Fi. You can do that, too, and you can find the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com uh, for more info about shows, notes, photos, links, and more. Thanks for listening. We couldn't and probably wouldn't do it without you. No, we, we definitely wouldn't. We, we wouldn't. Just, yeah, We'd be so. done. Until Bye, guys. Time. Next time. Goodbye. See so ya. long. Bye. See you later. Bye. All right, man. I'm going okay. to uh, see what we're working with audio-wise, and I'll text <laughs> oh, you in a little yeah. bit. At least it's short. I'm sure it's all error. I just yeah. think there's going to be some...